we've seen so far, uh, those first couple of chapters when it seemed to the people that God was silent in their waiting, and yet actually God was active even in 400 years of slavery, even in the people crying out to God. Many generations would have come and go in that time and thought, where is God? Is he listening to our prayers? That reminds us that that what we see in in Scripture and the promises of God are way beyond the here and now, and actually God might even use the troubled and hard times. I think Donnie was speaking into that a little bit in the word that he shared, that God may use the times where the tree looks dead to actually preserve and prepare and then bring life. And the Saviour came and was was, uh, prophesied in the birth of Moses, and yet... He didn't look like much of a saviour, did he, for 80 years, 80 years. And we saw the unimpressive and undeserving. Moses got less and less impressive and less and less deserving. But then he was invited into the personal presence of a holy God on that Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And then he, he trusted God, he took God's promises, he went, he went to Pharaoh to challenge Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And in his weakness, God made him look weaker. And he looked like a failure. And then we saw last week in chapter 7, finally he was ready when he was saying, I'm barely even a believer. I can't believe you're sending me. I can't do this. That was when he was ready to go. And then we've seen, starting last week, and we're going to see more this week, that as we enter these, these plagues, famous ten plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt to um, tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, that actually the theme of these first nine is that in terms of getting the people out of Egypt, they're, they're almost useless. In fact, they're not even designed for that, we see. And I've put on your sheets the fact that actually if you, if you look carefully at the text from 7 to 10, you'll see that what we have is three sets of three plagues, nine in total. And there's a little introductory phrase to each section. So there on your sheets you'll see seven, chapter 7, verse 15. God says, go to Pharaoh in the morning. Then again, 8, chapter 20. Uh, sorry, chapter 20, verse... Sorry, chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh. And then we get three more plagues. And this time, it's just the Lord who leads them. It's not Aaron or Moses who throw down the staff. And then, chapter 9, verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh. And then we get three more plagues. And this time, it's Moses who throws down the staff. And that all along, we saw, in fact, when we look back at chapter 4, Perhaps look at that again. We saw that the tenth plague is the big deal. Just just have a look on to page 68, chapter 11, verse 1. So we we have in 7 to 10 these nine plagues. And then chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. So the big deal is the tenth plague. 
And, and God said that was going to be the big deal way before Moses even went to Pharaoh. So are these nine just a filler? What's the point of those nine plagues of horrific destruction of Egyptian agriculture? What's the point? Well, the repeated phrase we're going to see as we, as we read through them, I'm not going to read every verse, but as we read through them, we're going to see this repeated phrase, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Or so that you will know, so that you will know that I am the Lord. And that's the point of these repeated plagues, is to get into Pharaoh's mind, and we're going to see into the mind of all people in Egypt, that the Lord is God, and you, Pharaoh, are not. But of course that is to us as well. That thing we said last week, you point the finger at someone, three fingers point back at you. As we point to Pharaoh and go, you are not. Also we need to hear that. The Lord is God and you are not. We can never act as if there is no God. Most of our society in secular Britain think that we can act as if there is no God. But we can never act as if there is no God. Either the Lord is God, or other things that we think will satisfy us and actually will suck the life out of us are God in our life. But if we say we're not religious and we don't believe there's a God, there is a God, and it's me. You see, if there's no one else who calls the shots in the universe, then I call the shots, don't I? And I am God of my life, and whatever I think will satisfy me, I will serve that thing to provide for me. Be it money, or career success, or friendship, or a loving relationship. All these things are good things, security, health, these are good things, but we've got to serve something because actually we know that we are not self-sufficient. And every time the Lord says, then you will know that I am the Lord, we saw back in chapter 3 and 4 that the Lord is shorthand, those capital L-O-R-D in your Bible is shorthand for I am who I am. God has introduced himself to Moses and to his people as the all-sufficient God. We are not self-sufficient, can we? Uh, are we? We, we? we actually, as we become more independent in our own little homes and our own comfortable environments, we forget that in order to have those comfortable environments, we are utterly dependent on everything around us. Just for, for running tap water, we need a good water system. We need electricity in our homes. We need sewage system. We need a good healthcare system. We need good roads. And so we're actually completely and utterly dependent on everything around us. And the things that we think will satisfy us the most, those we serve the most, And we put ourselves at the centre and we serve things that we think will provide us security. And God says, no. You may know that I am the Lord and you are not. And if you serve me, I will provide you all the good things. I love to give. I'm a generous God. Just look at the creation around you in all its beauty and wonder. And you realise God is a generous God. And so we need to remember that the Lord is God and I am not. And I need him. And these plagues are there to break down everything that the people might be relying on to remind themselves that they are not God and God is not the things that they serve, but God is the Lord. 
I am who I am, the all-sufficient, all-eternal one. And actually, this is good news. What we're going to see is, is judgment, this kind of horrible plague after plague after plague, and, and people think, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because there's all this judgment. But actually, judgment on those things is really good news. It's really good news that the greatest power in this universe is not blind, pitiless indifference, as Richard Dawkins puts it. It's not blind chance. That is not the greatest power in the universe. It is hugely liberating to realise actually that the greatest power in the universe or the most important being in the universe is not me. It's hugely liberating. It takes the pressure off. And it's not strange, unknowable gods. The greatest power in the universe is not a what, it's a who, the Lord. I am who I am. Just flick back, if you would, to page 60. Just have a look at, again at the major themes that were set up for us back in chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Uh, so chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, on page 61, uh, the last paragraph on the left-hand side of 61. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh... All the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he, will, he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. There, back in chapter 4, before Moses had even gone to Pharaoh, we get a summary of exactly what's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to refuse to let Israel go. And so, the firstborn sons of Egypt will die. And in that, in that section, we get three kind of major themes that we looked at last week. We're not going to really look at them again this week. I'm just going to touch on them. You can go back and you can listen on Spotify or on YouTube. Uh, if you just type in Stratum Central Church and um, Exodus... Um, it should come up. But we saw three big themes. One, we saw God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That, that, we'll come back to that, but um, listen to last week and you'll see that. We, we talked about the theme of a, a suspension bridge. A suspension bridge only holds up if both sides are absolutely strong and firm. And actually, life only holds up, if you think about it logically, if God is totally in control. Because if God is not in control, the world falls apart and collapses and evil and chaos takes over or you know, just no one knows where anything's going. Everything falls apart if God is not totally in control. But if we are not responsible for our actions and our decisions, then we're just robots and puppets. And, and what we're going to see in this passage is, is Pharaoh sort of destroying himself. And, and if you think that, that, that God is totally in control and Pharaoh is not then said, why, why are you hitting yourself in the face, Pharaoh? It's like, oh, I can't stop myself. No, Pharaoh's making his own decisions. So we're going to see that theme of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We're going to see this contest that's outlined here of, between two sons. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the, the serpent, where, where Satan, the power of, of evil setting himself up against God, the, 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 the great angelic being who's rebelled against God and said, I, I don't want to just be uh, a branch in the tree. I want to be the tree myself. 
I, I don't want to be just uh, dependent on God, the source of life. I want to be the source of life. I want to be God. Satan invites Adam and Eve into this lie that they can be God over themselves. They can be the Lord of their lives. And then God says in allowing creation to, to crumble and fall, God says in that, that time of saying there will be a curse on creation. God says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's going to be a battle between Satan, the serpent, and the seed of woman, the true humanity that God has made them to be. And there's, there's a choice for every human being. Are you going to side with the lie of Satan? and follow that belief that you can be God over your own life, or are you going to be the true humanity that God has made you to be? And there's going to be this battle on. And, and we see in this passage that the battle between firstborn sons is picking up on that language. And, and Pharaoh, we saw, dresses up as a, a serpent. Um, he's got that cobra-type headdress. He's actually got a little serpent on his crown. And he's asserting divine authority and power. The question is, who are you going to side with? And, and we see, actually, that the punishment of, ultimately, the, the firstborn son of Pharaoh being killed fits the crime. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile. Pharaoh has tried to wipe out Israel by killing the boys and so he's going to find that his firstborn son is killed. We're going to see that even God's people need rescuing from that judgment of death. Every time there's a death, we've been reminded of it a lot in COVID era, we need to realise actually this is a world that is under judgment. The reason that our hearts cry out when there's a death, why is the world not as it should be? It's because the world is not as it should be. And actually accelerating that forward into this moment of judgment is in some ways God's kindness. It's a wake-up call. And the fact that we've had death on our TV screens a lot over the last few years is a wake-up call, is part of God's kindness to us. And the punishment fits the crime in Pharaoh's situation, but the punishment also fits the crime in our situation. If we say to God, the source of life, I don't want you to rule my life, if we cut ourselves off from the source of life, what's the punishment that fits the crime? being cut off from the source of life. It's death itself. And then we see this theme. I'm telling you all this so that as we read through these chapters, you'll just see it popping out as it comes. And we see this theme also in that little section of chapter 4. Do you see verse 23? Let my son go so that he may worship me. We're going to see that phrase again and again. So that he may worship me. So God describes the whole of Israel as his, as his precious son, the one who's going to inherit the blessing. God's son, God's people will be freed so that they may worship the Lord. And we're going to see that actually true freedom is the freedom to worship the true and living God. True freedom is liberation from all those things that we think will provide for us, but actually never do. It's the freedom from thinking that we are the centre of the universe. And actually that's so burdensome, it's self-destructive. 
True freedom is freedom to worship the true and living God. And we'll see some other repeated themes as we go. Okay, so we've seen chapter 7, three plagues, blood, frogs, gnats, that the blood, that the, the Nile, the River Nile, turned to blood, was particularly um, striking as the first plague because it showed that the Nile, which they saw as the source of life, and in so many ways it was, became a picture of death, turned to blood. We saw that the um, magicians, who would have been kind of uh, temple-type priests in uh, the false gods of Egypt, we saw that they were able to mimic some of the plagues but ultimately their secret arts fail. And we see a smashing of the false gods of, or idols of Egypt. They even worship the Nile and it turns to blood. The thing they thought that could provide them life saps life from them. Okay, so second set of plagues. Chapter 8, verse 22, on page 64. Chapter 8, verse 22, actually 65, bottom left-hand side of page 65. But on that day, the Lord says, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. So he said he's going to send flies. On that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. So there was this section um, of the Nile Delta uh, that had been given to the people of Israel by Pharaoh 400 years before. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarm of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Verse 24, and the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then, verse 25, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. Verse 28, skip on, I'm just going to keep skipping through, so follow with me. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. We see the beginning of Pharaoh sort of thinking, oh, maybe I can do a bit of both. Maybe I can, can give them a little bit of rope and then, and then pull them back. And he does this kind of deceiving scheming. Skip on to verse 30. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The, Lord, the flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Pharaoh is setting himself up against God. He sees he might be making a mistake. He sees a chance. He pulls back. Plague 5. Death of livestock. There's a warning in verses 1 to, 1 to 5 of chapter 9. So we're now into chapter 9. And then verse 6 of chapter 9. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the, livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Look on to verse 11, next plague, the boils. The magicians could not stand before Moses. 
because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. So that, that word magicians, it's more priests. So these people who are supposed to be intermediaries between the Egyptians and the gods, <laughs> they're so covered in boils that they can't even stand before Moses. But still, verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Pharaoh hardens his heart, the Lord hardens his heart. The Lord is sovereign, Pharaoh is fully responsible. Next plague. Plague number seven, hail, verse 13 of chapter nine. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or, verse 14, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up. I have raised you up, God says to Pharaoh. Could be described, I have spared you. I have raised you up, I have spared you for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I knew you would resist. I knew you would resist. But I have spared you to show the folly of resisting me, the Lord. To show the life-sapping horror of turning thing to things that cannot provide. And from now on, my name will be proclaimed in all the earth because I have displayed my power to you. Whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of the stubborn madness of setting ourselves up as God of our own lives? I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I decide. I'm in control. Or do you want to be liberated from that life-sapping power? The Lord is God and you are not Pharaoh. Look on to verse 17. You still set yourself up against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from that day, from the day it was founded till now. Just have a look. In the midst of the promise of judgment, God's warnings are gracious. Just have a look at verse 19. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. There's a warning, there's a preparation. It's like, like that if the governments have got plans in place to, to have tsunami warnings, then people can escape. They can be safe. God gives gracious warnings. Have a look at verse 20, what happens in the light of those warnings. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves or their servants and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves or servants and livestock in the field. People are beginning to see maybe we should trust the Lord rather than ourselves. And then have a look on to verse 25. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then verse 27. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned. He said to them, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Finally. Finally, he's realised reality. 
continues, verse 28, he sounds very religious, doesn't he? Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know, I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord your God. Do you see why fear of the Lord is such a wonderful and good thing? Do you see what the opposite of fear is? Just have a look back at verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their servants and their livestock inside. That's what fear looks like. Fear looks like seeking wise shelter. Fear looks like looking to the one, the only one who can provide you with security for security. That's what fear looks like. What's the opposite of fear? The opposite of fear is not paying attention. Oh, God's irrelevant. Oh, I'll think about that when I'm older. The opposite of fear is just not paying attention to the Lord. Not listening to his word. Not realising that he's kind and gracious, that he wants to give you the very security that you long for. Do you pay attention to him? That's what fear looks like. Because if you know he is the only one you should fear, then nothing else is scary. But Moses says to Pharaoh, you don't fear the Lord. I know you don't. Now, I just want us to look at verses 31 and 32 as a little aside for a bit of historical detail. Do you see verse 31 and 32? The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. I mean, wh why would you put that in if you were making all this up? It's just, it's just a tiny bit of historical detail that shows that, that Moses was there. <laughs> and it happened. It doesn't prove everything. It's, just, it's nice to see a bit of historical detail, isn't it? Verse 33, then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city, spread out his hands towards the Lord, and the thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Plague 8, Locusts, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. It is great news that God deals harshly with his enemies. And that doesn't undermine in the least the fact that Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God offers grace to his enemies. We see it again and again and again in these chapters. And actually, many of the Egyptians go with the Israelites into safety. But it's good news that the Lord deals harshly with his enemies. If you are an oppressed people, if you are a broken people, like many of our brothers and sisters across the world, the Lord will bring justice. And it's for our sake he tells these things, so that we may know that God deals harshly with his enemies. So, verse 3 of chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says. 
How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let, me, let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Being humbled, humbling ourselves is simply recognising God is God and I am not. I don't know what situations you've been in. Maybe you can talk about the fact that through hardship that you've faced, actually the Lord has humbled you and helped you realise, oh, I'm, I'm not the centre of the universe. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the chosen one. I'm not the special one. He is. And the liberating effects of, of being humbled. But you either humble yourself or you are humiliated. You'll be humbled or you humble yourself or you'll be humiliated. Let's have a look at verse 5. The locusts will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled into this land until now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, see they're getting it, they're getting it, verse Seven. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realise that Egypt is ruined? You see, the people are coming round. Even Pharaoh's officials are seeing that the Lord was right. They're seeing that Pharaoh is destroying the very land he claimed to protect. The more we set ourselves up as thinking that we are a nation that doesn't need God, the more we will destroy ourselves, the more our government will destroy us, the more we will be complicit in going after things that cannot provide and cannot satisfy. At what point will we wake up and see that only the Lord is God and none of our schemes will satisfy us? These officials see that Pharaoh is destroying the very land he claimed to try and protect. So verse 8, then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Maybe he's had a change of mind again. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me, who will be going? Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our own flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, let the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locust swarms over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night and every morning the wind had brought the locusts. Sorry, by morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on the tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. Just think of the utter devastation. These locust plagues have been recorded again and again by, um, uh, by scientists and those looking at farming. Apparently the, the highest density of locusts ever recorded to our knowledge, and this may have been higher, 10,000 locusts. I mean, each locust is like about that big. 10,000 locusts per square foot. 
10,000 locusts per square foot, and they come in enormous clouds, and the sky does go black with them, and they just they eat their own body weight every day. 10,000 per square foot, billions upon billions of locusts. They can just take all the life, all the agriculture, all the very things that these Egyptians were relying on to provide their food and their nourishment. Gone. They wonder, verse 16, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Uh, now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take away this deadly plague. Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Apparently that's a very normal thing. They come and they go very quickly. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's hearts, and he would not let the Israelites go. And so, verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hands towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And this, this final of the nine plagues before the tenth, this, it's like the final act of decreation. was the first thing that God said to a world that was full of chaos and darkness. He said, let there be light. And now the lights go out. It's as if the sun has gone out. There's no longer any light. And do you know what Pharaoh was seen, of, as, as seen as? He was seen as the son of the god Ra, the god of the sun. Pharaoh, I will decreate and I will snuff you out. And so, verse 24, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and your children may go with you. Only uh, leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us too. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we need to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face again, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. In judgment, the Lord is bringing grace. In judgment, the Lord is showing where true life is found. And many, many, many Egyptians see that the Lord is good and the Lord is God. So much so that there's no need to plunder the Egyptians like an enemy army destroyed on the ground. The Egyptians willingly give up their gifts to the people that they see have the true source of life as their God. And we learn in, later in chapter 12 that many went out with the multitude to be saved. 
the Lord is real, they see, and they want to join his people. And the Lord still invites anyone today who's not trusting in him to join him. He reminds those who think they're self-sufficient to come back to him. The Lord is God, and you are not. And as we saw last week, we're just like Pharaoh, aren't we? We're just like Pharaoh, because the thought process we go through is very similar to the thought process he goes through. As I said last week, we kind of all start with this idea that we're the centre of the universe. And if we believe in God, we think, if there is a God, then he wants me to be in charge. I'm the centre of my world. And then when we're, we're challenged that maybe we're not in charge and someone comes to us with, with the good news, we might say, but who is the Lord? I mean, it's all make-believe. Why, why should I listen to him? That's what Pharaoh said to Moses. And then Pharaoh tries to see if he can sort of hold on to some power. He starts to realise that he doesn't have all power. And he, he sees if he can let them go, but also keep them enslaved. Can I offer the Lord just a little bit? And we think, you know, can I offer the Lord just a little bit of my life? I recognise there's a God, and I'll pray occasionally, um, and I'll look to him for emergencies. Or, or can I give him most of what he asked for? You know, most. I, I, I now believe in him. I, I can see he's real. Can I, can I give him most? Just everything except the, the women and children, or everything except the livestock. Everything except this, this bit of my life that I want to keep to myself. And, and then finally, we, we ask, don't go too far. Can, can, I, can I get back control once I've given it? And we keep coming back, even as believers, to thinking there's no God to fear and we can run our lives our way. But God, in his grace, reminds us that he will judge what, what will drag us away from him. God is angry at our self-destructive tendencies. I remember my eldest sister saying to me, when her, uh, my eldest nephew is now 21, when he was just a toddler, and he couldn't understand, she, she didn't um, advocate smacking, but she said, there's one thing I'll smack him for. We live by a road, and if he goes out towards that road, I will smack him because I, he can't understand my words, but he can understand the smack. And I only do that, I show him my anger, not because I don't love him, but because I do. I want him to be stopped from self-destructive tendencies. And the Lord showing us his judgment is, is good and kind and gracious. Now we've got 10 seconds for a time of questions. So we're going to park that. And I just want us to close by coming back to this theme of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And someone helped me as that I was listening to over the last couple of weeks. We find it hard, this idea that God is in control and yet we are totally responsible for our actions. And they said it's quite hard to look at two seemingly contradictory things and understand how they could be one thing. And they said, well, just think of a cylinder. Like this, OK? 
Okay. If you can only see 2D, what can you see? A circle. Okay, right. Now, if you can only see 2D, what can you see? A rectangle. How can a circle be a rectangle? How can a circle possibly be a rectangle? How could the two things be one? Of course, if they're a cylinder and you can see 3D. And the Lord can see how the universe fits together. And the Lord can see that Pharaoh totally hardened his own heart. The circle was real. He was totally responsible for his actions. We are totally responsible for our actions and our decisions. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart because God is totally in control. And God sees the whole. He sees that the rectangle and the circle are one. Just have a look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 there on your sheets. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all one, one book like the Harry Potter series. Genesis 50, verse 20, sets up this whole theme of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Joseph says to his brothers, who'd, who'd done him immense harm, Genesis 50, verse 20, there on your sheets, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God used his judgment against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hard heart to save. Not just his own people, but to invite many others into his people. What he also saw is that those plagues in some ways represented the, the false gods of Egypt. The things that the people looked to as their source of life, their, their livestock, their fields, their, the waters, the, the light even. Those good things given by God, they somehow had been taken captive by demonic forces that had deceived the people, along with the lie of Satan, into believing that they could be satisfied by those good things rather than by God, the giver of good things. When you turn a good thing into a God thing, it becomes an idol and it saps life from you. And actually, in the New Testament, we discover actually throughout the Bible, we discover that, that there's demonic forces between turning good things into God things. And, and that's why when people worship gods of different types of thing, gods of agriculture, gods of love, gods of money and so on, they're actually worshipping demonic forces. And how does God solve that problem? Because actually what happens in Exodus is actually only a shadow of the reality that we get in Christ. Well, let's see that in Colossians there on your sheets. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, there on your sheets, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive, enslaves you, through hollow and deceptive philosophies, or worldviews, or ways of thinking. Our, our nation, our world is, is captivated, isn't it, by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That elemental spiritual forces... We don't use that kind of language a lot, but for the Colossians, they would have understood that. The demonic powers, the demonic forces that turn good things given by God into God things. When we, when we think anything other than God himself will supply, we are enslaved to demonic forces. We might not think we are. Verse 9, for in Christ, so don't be taken by, captive by that, Instead, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. He is the true Yahweh. 
He's the true Moses. He took flesh and was the perfect human being who lived and represented. He lived the life that you failed to live so that he could die the death that you deserve to die. And let's see what happens when he died. Verse 13 on your sheets. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, we saw how Moses used that language, uncircumcision, as, as I'm basically an unbeliever. When you weren't believing in God, you were dead. You were dead. But God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. We, we definitely deserve the judgment. We are legally indebted, which stood against us and condemned us. But he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What we see in Exodus 7 to 10 is the, is the powers and authorities. We see the powers and authorities that have gripped us, that have made us think money or love or career or security or health will satisfy me. We, we see those things smashed and made a public spectacle of. And what Paul is saying is, in the way that those demonic forces in Egypt were smashed through the plagues, actually the ultimate way they were smashed is when the eternal Son of God came and took humanity to himself. And as he hung on that cross, as he hung on that cross, Satan thought he was going to win. Satan thought he had sapped the life out of the life giver himself. Satan thought, I have won. I will supply now. Of course, he attacked the life-giver himself. And as Jesus died on that cross, he took all our sin, all our legal indebtedness, all the price that we deserve to pay for our sin and our failure and our mess, and he took it. And he killed it in his own flesh. But because he is the source of life, then death could not hold him, and God raised him from the dead, and he made a public spectacle over the principalities and powers, and it looked so small and weak, but life by life, Hundreds by hundreds, thousands by thousands, now billions by billions. People are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and being rescued from the powers of sin and Satan. And actually what we need to pray is that the idols of our world get smashed in the same way. And we saw last week how that the cancelled plans of lockdown showed us we're not in control. That idol got smashed. Let's pray that we look to the Lord. As we were locked down in our own little homes, we reminded ourselves that we we're not independent. We are relational. We need people and we're, a God, we're made by a God of relationship. As we saw the numbers stack up of those who are dying every day of COVID, we realized we're not immortal. And we even see that wonderful things like healthcare in the NHS cannot save us. So much so that we ended up saying things like, save the NHS, save the saviour. The saviour cannot provide if it's a human saviour, but the saviour, who is God himself, shows us that actually sickness and death is only a doorway into true life with him, if only we trust him. 
The Lord Jesus is Yahweh. The Lord Jesus is God. And you are not, and I am not. And it is liberating to trust in him. It is so freeing to take that rucksack of the burden of being the God of your life off your shoulders and to hand it to him and say, Jesus, you are the Lord. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to listen to you. I want to fear you in the right way. Thank you that you are powerful when I am not. Thank you that you can provide when the things I look to cannot provide. Thank you that you satisfy. We're going to sing that wonderful song on the back of our sheets as a, as a prayer, as a way of reminding ourselves that the Lord Jesus came into the darkness and brought hope and life to those who were looking for it in the wrong places. Let's stand and sing in the darkness.